Hey, everybody. So uh, I, um, I wanted to uh, introduce our guest speaker this morning. Um, Jimmy Shaw is a friend of mine from ORU. Um, I've known him for about five or six years, or I guess back back at 2010, 2011, when I was uh, in seminary, he was a professor there. He um, taught some missions classes and done some other things. And uh, I've just, you know, kind of kept in touch with him and followed him on Facebook and stuff like that. And he um, had this uh, awesome ministry he's starting up that sounded like a really, really cool thing um, to, to learn some more about. And he's going to share a little bit about that today. But Jimmy's just one of those guys that, like, I'll... I'll it's like you never know where in the world you're going to see some Facebook post. It could be like Nepal, could be Africa. It's like, what the heck do you do for a living? Like you're always going to these really crazy, obscure places. But that's the kind of guy he is. He's been to, you know, probably share some of the stories about the countries he's been to. But he has a huge heart for missions and uh, just enabling the body of Christ to fulfill the Great Commission, which is the biggest call um, that, that Christ left us as the church to do. And so he's got a lot of a lot of passion and, and great, um, great, uh, great, um, just a, just an amazing amount of knowledge that he uh, that the Lord's given him to um, do that with excellence, and that's one of the things that he's he's uh, he's just a really he's a he's a great person to to know because of that because he's got a lot of great insight into um, just understanding culture and understanding how we need to um, bridge the gap from where we are to where those unreached people are. And so he's a, he's a really innovative guy and he's got a lot of great ideas for, for, um, for what that looks like. So I'd like to invite him up. Give him a hand, won't you, this morning. He's, he's got an awesome word he's going to share with us. I'll just pray for him real quick. Lord, we thank you so much for Jimmy and uh, him being able to be here with us this morning. We pray that you just uh, uh, fall on him right now and give him an amazing anointing to speak to us and just encourage us in your word and what it means to proactively live for you, God. We thank you so much, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys so much. Um, I, I used to have the job of introducing people when it was their turn to be a guest speaker, and uh, I always try to, like, puff them up really well, you know, and tell everybody, man, this guy's really great. You're really going to enjoy this, but there comes a certain point where it's like, man, I'm not sure I'm living up to that. <laughs> And so I just want to say thank you, first of all, uh, for letting me come and share with you this morning. Um, I'm really excited to be here. Uh, I get to travel to a lot of very interesting places, but this is my first time here, and I'm really excited to be here. Um, if you have your Bible, you can get it. We'll be in Luke chapter 5 here in just a minute. Um, uh, as Corey said, uh, my role now, I run a ministry called Project Doxa. What we do is... Um, we're helping churches in the States facilitate missions projects and, and connect with some people overseas. We'll talk a little bit about one or two of those in a bit. Um, I've had the privilege of doing some really cool things over the last few years. I've led a little more than 80 mission trips to 45 countries. We take people all over the world, and, um, and it's really kind of an exciting thing. Um, but this is what I love to do. I love to teach the Scripture. And in particular, I'm going to talk to you today uh, about a passage of Scripture that's very relevant to me. Um, I'm going to tell you a bit about my story. Uh, I'm going to read from Luke 5. We're going to talk about the call of Peter. And the reason I want to talk about Peter is this, because Peter is a guy who many of us can relate to. And I think sometimes, I don't know how this happened, uh, but somewhere in the history of American Christianity, there became like a, a disconnect between kind of the varsity and junior varsity Christians. 
You know, like, like the scripture is relevant to all of us, but sometimes we say, yeah, but that's really for the pastors and that's really for missionaries. Um, and that's not really for people like me. Um, and, and I think guys like Peter just blow that out of the water. And I, I really appreciate um, some of this. And part of the reason that I really appreciate Peter is because he's a fisherman. Um, he's kind of a rough guy. In, in contemporary life, many things are automated by machines, which is pretty cool. But in Peter's day, he was the machine. Men like him did things that, that kind of are automated now. But, but life at kind of the basis level had worn these guys down a bit. They smelled like fish guts. Their hands were permanently calloused. Maybe you know some folks who work like this. Um, but Peter's one of my favorite characters in part because I grew up with kind of a contemporary Peter in my father. My father is a rough, a rough guy. <laughs> uh, he is not what you would uh, describe as like a soft man. Like if he lives in it, he built it, all right? And if he eats it, he probably killed it. And uh, he was given over to substance abuse for a good chunk of his life. And most of what I encountered as discipline as a child would probably warrant the attention of the state these days. Um, but I love my father. Nobody in my life has taught me more about life than he has. Uh, he used to drag me out of bed on Saturday mornings to work on these side jobs, which he did just to learn a little extra money. And one time he was making a rabbit cage, because I don't know why, he decided we needed rabbits in our backyard, and he shot himself in the finger with a staple gun. And he was attached to the rabbit cage, and so he began to yell at me kindly, I'm sure, as you can imagine, to go and get a saw, which I sawed him off the, okay, off of the rabbit cage, and he went to the, to the doctor with a thing stuck to his hand. He once was working on some other stuff and using a radial saw, and he didn't like the guard that he had, so he took it off, and he accidentally dropped the saw, and it hit himself in the leg, and he still has the quarter that saved his life that stopped the blade. Um, I think that, like, predates me, so I'm, like, indebted to this quarter uh, in some strange way. Um, but my father is a fisherman, and I was talking to Pastor Nathan this morning about fishing, and he was telling me about fly fishing, which I have never done, uh, because back in Oklahoma, where I'm from, in small town life in Oklahoma, that's not the way we do fishing. We do fishing out of a small aluminum boat for crappie and for catfish, and we kind of don't like the bass fishermen with their fancy city boats and such. And so uh, they would fish for catfish, and one of the ways they would do that is they would stretch a line across like a channel of a lake, and they would put all these weights on it and these big hooks, and they would hook perch to it, and they would work their way along the line, and they would catch catfish this way. And it's a very dangerous way to fish. And even from the time that I was really little, my, my father made me carry a pocket knife while we went fishing because he said, hey, if you get hooked here and happen to go over, you're going to the bottom of the lake, you're going to need to cut the line. <laughs> I was like, I'm six, man. This is... <laughs> this is terrible. And he once got himself hooked with... Uh, with this giant barbed hook, and it's a bad deal out in the middle of the lake, and he didn't want to stop fishing, and I apologize for those of you who don't like these kind of things. You can just plug your ears, but he just poked it right on through and clipped it and tore it off, okay, and then wrapped his hand with electrical tape and kept on going, <laughs> and, uh, and I share this for this reason, right, because I want you to know who we're talking about here. These are the type of people that God called, and sometimes we think about people in ministry and we think, you're the guy who's educated or you went to school or you come from this kind of family or you were raised in the church. But, but the early disciples, many of them were just rough people. And God called them in the midst of their situation. Peter's a hard man, right, with scars from stupid fights, you know. 
He's a guy who his friends make apologies for. That's just Peter, you know? And these are the types of people who God calls. And I want to share about him because I think sometimes we make an excuse, and maybe you're not this way, but I'm kind of this way, and we say, yeah, but that's for those guys. But, but my case this morning is that if God can call someone like Peter, if God can use someone like Peter, if God can use someone like me, maybe God can use you too. Maybe God has a plan for you even bigger than what you think. So Luke chapter 5, I'm going to read the first seven verses, and then we'll get into this just a bit more. It says, so it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. And when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they both began to sink. So I want you to think about this here for just a second. Peter's washing his nets. He said, had a disappointing night of fishing, okay? Sometimes fishing is fun, but when fishing is your job and you've done it all night long and you've caught nothing, it's not the best time for someone to say, hey, why don't we go out for a catch? But Jesus tells him, let's go out, let's go out and uh, let's let down the nets after, of course, he had listened to a sermon out of Simon's boat that he had commandeered. And you can imagine Peter just saying to him, hey, listen, you're the teacher, I'm the fisherman, we went fishing, we caught nothing, but nevertheless, what you say, we'll do it. And so Peter responds with what we might call reluctant obedience. Maybe some of you understand that. Um, sometimes God calls us to do things and we're right on the spot. And sometimes God calls us and we don't understand and it doesn't make any sense. And we respond um, somewhat reluctantly. Nevertheless, whatever you say, Lord. And so he does that. They go out, they drop the nets. And you read this part, right? They catch enough fish to sink two boats. Now, I don't know how many fish it takes to sink two boats, but that's a lot of fish. And if your livelihood is coming from selling fish, that's a lot of money worth of fish, okay? Um, and I think this is just such an amazing thing. Can you imagine how many fish this is? How would you process this? That many fish are worth a fortune, but Peter doesn't see the money. He sees the message. Now, um, <laughs> I don't know. Peter had heard Jesus' teaching and seen his miracles, but only now does Peter begin to realize who Jesus really is. Um, and so Peter then responds, and I think this is an important verse here. Let's read this, verse 8. It says, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Now, I've always thought that to be a very curious response, okay? So God is doing this thing in his life. It's a dramatic miracle. It's clearly a miracle in his life. And Peter doesn't say, amazing, thank you, wow, Lord. He says he falls on his knees and says, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Um, I really relate to this because Peter's painfully aware of his sinfulness in the presence of Jesus, and he basically just says, I don't know who you're looking for, but you got the wrong guy. I'm a sinful man, O oh Lord. I'm not the guy you're looking for, you know? I'm not a righteous person. And it's funny because throughout the whole Bible, we find these people that keep trying to push God away, but God keeps coming, right? Um, in Exodus chapter 20, the people of Israel say to, to Moses, you go talk to God lest we die, <laughs> Like, we don't need to do that. My favorite story, though, of trying to get God to leave is recorded in 1 Samuel 5. It's the story of Dagon. Um, 
And some things have happened with the Philistines, and they have stolen the Ark of the Covenant, and they decide, what are we going to do with it? So they put it in kind of their idol room next to their god, Dagon. And they come in the next day, and Dagon, the statue, is on his face. And they think, oh, that's weird. Who tipped over Dagon? So they prop Dagon back up, right? And they come back the next day, and Dagon's on his face. Only his head and his hands are completely broken off. And then their solution is, hey, listen, we got to get rid of the Ark. Because that God, whatever's going on with that God, he keeps messing with our gods. He keeps messing with the things that we worship, and having him in our life is too hard. Let's get rid of him. And, and I think what happens here in Peter's life is he's saying, look, I don't know what's going on here. This fishing thing is cool, but you've got the wrong guy. You know, I'm a sinful man, oh Lord. You need to depart from me. And maybe you guys have related to that. I know I have at certain times. But Jesus' response then to him, and this is where we'll spend some time, in verse 9, he says, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. And so when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. Now, what a curious choice of words Jesus has chosen to respond to Peter. Peter says, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus responds, don't be afraid. Afraid of what, by the way? Afraid of what? <laughs> what a curious thing to be afraid of. He can't know what's ahead of him. And in some ways, he's saying, don't be afraid of kind of the unknown. Um, because he doesn't know, Peter doesn't know at that moment that one day he'll walk on the very water that he was in here. He doesn't know that one day he'll see Jesus transfigured in glory on the mountain. He doesn't know that someday he's going to whack off some guy's ear in the garden. He doesn't know that he's going to abandon Jesus in a moment of his deepest need. And he doesn't know that he's going to be restored and preach a sermon where 3,000 people come to the Lord in one day. He doesn't know any of that. What he knows at this moment is, God is messing with me. Okay? And Jesus says to him, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they left everything to follow him. And Peter walks away from what would be a sure fortune without a guarantee, only an opportunity. Right. Um, we've been trained to want guarantees with everything. If you don't like what you've got here, you can return it for a full refund. But there's no refund in kingdom life, okay? It's not a guarantee that's given to him, just an opportunity. And Peter leaves everything to follow him. And I think this is important because people of faith don't deal in the currency of guarantees, when the Lord calls us, we take a step of faith. We don't know what's coming, but we put ourselves in the hands of the Lord. And I think that's really exciting because we understand as people of faith that risk is the price of growth. No risk, no growth. It just doesn't happen quite that way. And so Peter abandons everything familiar for a chance at an epic adventure with a wild God. And I love this. But don't miss the reason why Jesus calls Peter to the journey. He says, from now on, you will catch men. You see, the reason that Jesus interrupted Peter's life was people. There are people on the other side of Peter's obedience. And this is so important. The scripture tells us in Revelation chapter 7 that one day a multitude of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will gather around the throne of God saying, worthy is the Lamb. Well, how are they going to get there? Like, what is the plan to bring these people into relationship with God? Well, the plan is you and me. That's the plan. Maybe that's not a good plan, but that's the plan. Um, you know, Jesus basically entrusts the whole message of the gospel to like 12 crazy guys <laughs> and says, all right, it's up to you guys. We'll empower you by the Spirit, you know, but, but you guys are going to do this. And they have, and we're here because of them, right? And so 
I don't know, it's this multi-ethnic multitude so vast that no man can number gathered around the throne of Jesus, casting their crowns at his feet. It drives everything we do as believers. Um, the mission of God to make himself known throughout the whole earth is the single most important aspect of our lives as believers. Now, one of the things that happens, again, in Christian life, for whatever reason, I don't know why, is that we try to think, we tend to think of people becoming Christians more like the finish line than the starting line. And so we say, oh, this person, they finally became a believer, and we celebrate, which we should. But we don't tell them sometimes, hey, this is day one. Now you're going to walk with the Lord a long time. You're going to be faithful to the Lord, and you're going to serve, and you're going to raise godly children and grandchildren, and you're going to invest in kingdom projects and missions. Because what we think about is, well, now this person's in, and they're good, which is true, but not all the way true, okay? Um, I like to say stuff that sometimes is offensive. I apologize if this is offensive, but we, we tell people sometimes, like, if there was no mission for you after becoming a believer, we just hold you under longer when we baptize you. <laughs> because the truth of the matter is, we baptize people and they come out of the water with newness of life, with a mission and a purpose to be part of kingdom life. Um, can I share some numbers with you? In, in AD 100, so about 100 years after the time of Christ, 65 years after the time of Christ, there was only one Christian for every 1,000 people in the world, right? One-tenth one of 1% 1 of the world's population. But in 380, only 200 years later, there was one Christian for every 250 people. The gospel was spreading. By 1900, there was one Christian for every 25 people. And today we live in a world where we have one Christian for about every six or seven people. The gospel is spreading throughout the whole earth like crazy. Now, here's the other flip side of that that is just so hard for us to understand. There's just so many more people alive today, okay? Um, there are more people alive today, presently, than have ever lived, okay? There are more Christians alive on the earth today than in heaven, which is a stunning fact to think about. More than, a little more than a billion Christians around the globe. But what it also means is there's a little more than six billion people who are still outside of the family of God. And that is a huge thing for us to realize. And not all of those people are in far off countries, though many of them are. The United States actually is the fifth largest mission field in the world in terms of total number of unchurched non-Christian people. Fifth. If you took all of the unchurched people in the United States and you gathered them all together and just made them their own country, just a country of these non-Christians, it would be the seventh largest country in the world. In my lifetime, more missionaries will come to the United States than we send from the United States. This is the reality of the world where we live. You live in the mission field. And so a lot of what I do with missions projects, we're taking people to faraway places, we're serving in countries, we'll show you some pictures of Nepal here in a little bit. We're doing a lot of this stuff, but in the reality, part of that is we're, we're investing there, but also so we know how to better invest here. You are the, the hands and feet of God here in this place. There are people that are your friends and your neighbors and your family members and people you don't yet know who are in your community, who are moving around here. Their, their plan, like the plan of the gospel for them to understand who God is, it's us. Like, that's the plan. Um, and this is a challenging thing for us, okay? Um, but God's plan to meet the overwhelming need that we face in the world, it's you and me. There's no backup plan. Now, again, maybe that's a good plan, maybe that's a bad plan. It wasn't my call, okay, or your call, but that's the reality of where we are. And so here's what I think, okay, and this is kind of all a big lead into this. I think it may be that God might be calling some of us to leave our nets this morning, to take another step into greater kingdom involvement, to, to, to look and say, all right, Lord, I'm a missionary to my city. 
I'm a missionary to my region. I'm a missionary to my family. I'm a missionary to my coworkers. I'm going to follow you, Lord, and catch men. Um, Now, there are like a million reasons why you shouldn't abandon your nets. It's tough to lay aside the safety and security of everything you've kind of worked to build into your life. But that's all part of us. There's got to be a part of us, though, that wonders, what would it be like if we lived on an adventure with the Lord? If we took steps of faith when God called us? Like, what, what could happen in our life? What, what if we move beyond, and, and not to demean the fishing, but what if we move beyond just a life of catching fish every day? And we said, Lord, what if you call me to something bigger than that? Um, so some of you may think, yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're a pastor, okay? But here's the deal, right? I wasn't always. Um, there was a day before every missionary was a missionary. There was a day before every pastor was a pastor. Um, and God calls people like this. My plan when I was growing up, okay, is uh, I watched Top Gun when I was a kid. Maybe I shouldn't have watched it as a kid, but I did. And I wanted to fly jets off an aircraft carrier. That's what I wanted to do. And so uh, I, I was making plans to do that, and, and, and that was my hope. And so uh, before I ended up going to college, I was accepted into all three of our service academies. Um, that was my life. That's where I was headed, okay? I was raised in church, but I'd never really taken my faith seriously. My grandparents brought me to a church of 16 old people and me and my brother, okay? I'm from a town of 1,300 people. I graduated in a class of 22. Six people in my class went to college, and I'm the only one with a degree. I come from a small place on an Indian reservation in Oklahoma, um, and I come from this little tiny church. And so when most of the people who I grew up with, they've never left a three-state region, okay? They've never seen these kind of things. Um, but I sense God speaking to me and calling me. I was at a church camp that uh, some friends invited me to go to, and I was there, and I sensed that God was telling me to go to school at, at Oral Roberts University and study the Bible. And so I turned down my scholarships to the other places, and I showed up at ORU knowing nobody, I said, Lord, whatever you want, I'll follow you wherever you ask me to go. Um, During my first semester there, we were having a chapel service that was dedicated to missions. And I thought missions chapel was going to be some old guy showing pictures of the mission field, like a slideshow, because that's the world I came from with the small church where I was at. And they said, no, no, you can be a part of this. You can go and you can participate in missions. And I had no concept of how to do that. Like, I thought, that's crazy. Um, at that time in my life, um, I, I had never physically seen a $100 bill. I'd seen pictures, but I'd never seen one. And I'd never owned anything more than a 20. And my parents gave me $20 every two weeks, and that was $10 for a haircut and $10 for gas. Okay? And so then I shaved my head, and I was like rich. It was the best. <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, this is fantastic. I have money. And so I signed up for this mission trip, and I wanted to go to Africa or, or South America or somewhere far away, somewhere exciting, exotic. And, uh, and so they brought me into this big meeting, and there's a whole bunch of people, and I didn't know kind of the process. And they said, okay, we're going to raise money. You're going to go on this mission trip. And I said, okay, how much money do we have to raise? And they said, you need to raise $2,500. And I said, What? At that time in my life, I had no ability. If you had said I had to raise a million, it would have been the same. It doesn't matter. I don't have it. I don't have any means to have it. And so I said, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to trust the Lord because somebody told me I should. And we went along the process. We sent out some letters. We went through this thing, and we got close to uh, what was like our 50% deadline. We had to have half the money in. And guys, I had zero dollars. No one even gave me a dollar. Now, in our missions program back at ORU that I still help with, they start you off with a dollar. (laughs) Everybody gets a mission seed. 
I didn't even have the mission seat. I had zero dollars. And we come near the 50% deadline. And I went to my team leader and I said, hey, man, this missions thing, it seemed like a really great idea. It was really going to be fun and stuff, but I just don't know. I mean, it seems like I'm not going to get any money. Now, I should mention, part of the reason for that is they placed me on a team to Curacao and Aruba. All right? I don't know if you ever try to raise money to go to, like, paradise. It's hard. <laughs> I got a lot of, yeah, I'm going to spend money to buy a plane ticket to Aruba, but not for you. <laughs> but there were lost people there, and I didn't know anything about that. And, you know, my team leader said something really wise to me. He said, why don't you just stick around? Make them kick you off the team. <laughs> don't quit. Make them have the hard conversation. I said, that sounds like a great plan. <laughs> And so I just kind of moved forward with that. And you know what happened? Somebody in our church, in the little church where I grew up, they said, hey, I want to help you. And they wrote me a check for half my trip. I only got four total donations, but it paid for my trip. And that was my first mission trip. That was May of 99. Um, and like I said, I've led a little more than 80 trips to 45 countries since. Um, the Lord just continued to open the doors over and over and over and over again. And I'm like the son of a blue-collar telephone repairman from an Indian reservation in Oklahoma. But God called me, and I st stepped up and did that. And, and, and I say this stuff because <laughs> there's an adventure awaiting you following Jesus. And sometimes it, it gets routine. Like I show up for church. I go to small group. We do VBS. How cool was that to see all the kids and all these things? We do the things that we do. And there's life in that, and that's exciting. But there's a part of it, too, that, that kind of longs for, Lord, I want to see this. I don't want to read the scripture and think that must have been an exciting time. This is an exciting time. It's an exciting time to follow the Lord. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe you've never had this experience, but I had a guy, he came and he shared this story and he told this amazing, amazing story and it just made me angry. <laughs> and he told a story about how he was in a far off place and he was carrying a cross and that's kind of what he does for his ministry. He's a good friend of mine, his name is Keith Wheeler and he was carrying a cross and he would just share the story of the gospel when he would do that and he was walking in this place far, far away from home and he had this thought, he thought, man, I'm so thirsty, I would really love an orange Fanta. How great would it be to get an orange Fanta? And this is what happened. A lady pulls up beside him, gets out of the car, brings him an orange Fanta and said, this morning I was praying, I live a couple of hours away, and I felt like God told me to get in the car and drive to this place and buy an orange Fanta and tell the guy who's carrying the cross that Jesus was thinking of him. And so he told this story, and here's what the room did. They're like, wow, this is amazing. And my response was, yeah, go figure. Everything happens for Keith. <laughs> you know? And I had this thought of like, must be nice. Must be nice to have those things happen in your life. And so I, in my prayer time the next day or two, I was like, Lord, why does this stuff never happen in my life? And I felt like the Lord said, because you don't give me an opportunity. You didn't ever need that kind of miracle in your life. And, uh, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And so this was in uh, 2001, just after 9-11. And we were leading a missions team. I was set to lead a team that year. And... Um, and because of 9-11, all of our teams went domestic, so they didn't go international, except for two of our teams. One went to Montreal and one went to Vancouver, and I was the team leader for the team that went to Montreal. And so I spent three weeks up in Montreal sharing the gospel with people, and while I was there, I couldn't shake this thought about Keith and his orange Fanta. 
And I was like, Lord, why don't I ever have this opportunity? Or why don't I have these encounters? And, and I felt like the Lord was telling me, because I don't get an opportunity. So you know what I did? I went to the internet cafe, because I did, couldn't do this stuff on my phone at that time, okay? And I went to the internet cafe, and I said, that's it, I'm going to Africa. And I went and I emptied my bank account and bought a plane ticket to Africa for six weeks. I had been to Africa before, so it wasn't like I had never been there. But I bought the plane ticket, then sent an email to my contacts and said, hey, I hope you're in country because I'm coming. Um, and I went home from Montreal, and six days later, I jumped a plane and spent the whole summer in Africa. And I had crazy story after crazy story, and I don't have time to go into all of them. But I ended up meeting this guy uh, in a train in Amsterdam on my layover, and, and I just start this conversation with him. And he says, you know, where are you headed? And I said, I'm headed to Africa. And he said, where? And I was like, I don't really know. <laughs> And I began to talk to him, and he, has, he was a guy who was from the UK, and he had gotten really, really hammered and somehow woke up in Amsterdam. And I guess that happens there, and I don't know how that happens, but it happened to him. And he said, uh, yeah, now I've got to go home to face my wife, you know, and, and kind of face the music. And so he said, why would you go to Africa? And I began to tell him a bit of my story. And he said, oh, so you do it out of guilt then. I said, no, I do it because I can't stand to see people live without hope. And he broke. And he began to tell me this story about how this stuff had happened. He said, my wife's father's a minister, and he says, someday I'll find God when I need him. And I said, maybe your wife's father's a smart guy. And I began to share with this guy. And then I flew to, to Zambia, and I spent three weeks training village pastors. And I've taken dozens of teams there. I'll be there again in April. My middle daughter will be with me in Zambia for her first missions trip in April. And and we were there for a while, and then I, I flew to Johannesburg and then to a place called Durban in, in the east coast of, of South Africa because I had a friend from college whose family was there. And she, I sent her an email, and she said, yeah, my mom will be there. You can stay with her. And I started working with this church there for a week or two. And we were uh, training an Irish soccer team to do village ministry in the townships in Africa. And I said, man, I really feel like I need to go to Cape Town and they said, no problem. We have tons of connections in Cape Town. Go ahead and buy your ticket. We'll set you up. And I said, fine. So I bought the ticket to fly from Durban to Joburg to Cape Town. Or, yeah, and, and, uh, and the night before I left, our guy said, look, man, we tried. We can't get a hold of a single person in Cape Town. Do you want to just cancel this? I said, no, I feel like God told me to go, so I'm going to go. And so I got on the plane, and I didn't know when, where I was going to stay when I landed. And I flew to Joburg, and then I flew from Johannesburg to Cape Town, and I'm looking out the window, a little anxious-like, and this lady sitting next to me says, uh, this is your first time to Cape Town? And I said, yes, yes, my first time to Cape Town. She said, well, where are you staying? And I said, funny, you should mention that. I don't know, <laughs> you know? And this lady was a Mormon missionary. And she said, well, you can come stay with us. And I thought, well, well the Mormons are looking out for me, all right. I said, if there's nobody here at the airport, I'll come stay with you. But just before I got on the plane, I had sent a message to my guy in Zambia and said, hey, I'm going to Cape Town. I know you used to have some people there. If you've got somebody there, have somebody waiting for me at the airport. And he said, well, I don't know if anybody's there, but we'll see. So as we landed, I get there, and somebody has a little sign with my name on it. And so I thanked the nice Mormon lady and said, I think I'm going to go with these people who I didn't know who they were. And I got in the car with them, and we went to their place. And it turns out this guy who I was staying with was kind of a lapsed missionary, He'd been a missionary in Zambia, but things had gone south in his life, as sometimes ministry assignments do, and he just kind of drifted in his walk with the Lord, but he was willing to have me stay at his house for a couple of days, so that's what I did, and I just encouraged him and talked to him, 
And I said, I want to go to Cape Point. There's a point right there just south of Cape Town, and it's where the Indian and the, and the Atlantic oceans meet. And on one side, there's big waves, and the other side, it's really still. And this guy's father was like a known not good guy, okay? Like around town, people knew like this guy's just a bad guy. He's a tour guide, but just, you know, not a great person. And I said, hey, can he take me to the, to the point? And their forecast was just thunderstorms. He said, why would you even go? You won't see anything. I said, I just feel like I need to go. I want to go. So I got in the car with the guy. He drives me. And the whole way, he's like, this is stupid. We shouldn't be going here. You're not going to see anything. And I kid you not, guys, as I got there, like, it was like the whole sky just opened. No more rain. And there was a rainbow from one ocean over the point to the other. In my life, I'd never seen anything like it. And I told this guy, I was like, I think the Lord did this just for me. You know? There was nobody else even there. And I got in the car with him and I left. And as we drove away, the rains came again. Now, listen, I can tell you story after story after story of stuff like this, but I have a lot more days where those things didn't happen. They're just ordinary days. But the chance at an adventure with the Lord is worth it. Okay? And I would tell you this, um, as I'm wrapping up here, it, it, it takes courage to leave your nets. Um, fear comes naturally, but courage is almost always a choice made in the face of our fears. Um, I give this talk to our student missionaries every year before they go on their trips. Um, we're doing some training with them, and one of the ways we train them is we, we, we put them in a harness and take them up on some, like, high poles and stuff, and, and we, we do this because it's, it's helpful to get you out of your comfort zone as a preparation for missions. And so I tell them, it's okay to be afraid. We're going to ask you to do it anyway. Okay? Like, I don't care that you're afraid. I, I get it. You're afraid. I'm afraid. We're all afraid. We're going to do it anyway. And so I've been giving this talk to people for years and years. But one of the last times I gave this talk wasn't during my missions training, but I took my family to Cedar Point to ride roller coasters. Okay? And uh, it's like the world's greatest roller coaster park. And if I lived where you live, within like a day's drive, I'd be hitting that place all the time. Okay? I love this. It's one of our favorite places. It's a long ways. It's still like 10 hours, but that's closer than Oklahoma. And so, uh, um, but we went there and my daughter, my kids are a little bit big for their age. They're kind of tall. So my daughter was six years old and she was just tall enough to ride all the big rides. But, but she was kind of hoping she wasn't going to be quite tall enough so she didn't have to make the call about whether she wanted to ride the rides. I don't know. Maybe you guys have had this experience like, oh, I just can't do it. I'd love to, but... <laughs> And so she was there, and she was just tall enough. They have this little bar that kind of swings around, and it clipped her just on the top of the head. And I said, all right, babe, it's okay to be afraid. I want you to do it anyway. So she got on the, on the roller coaster with me. She sits down next to me, and as we start up the hill for this thing, she grips my hand, okay, and like tightly. And I'm like, all right, okay, I see you there. And we start down the first hill on this big roller coaster, and she begins to scream, all right? But what she screamed, I'll never forget. She starts screaming, I'm so scared. I'm so scared. This is so awesome. <laughs> and you see the metaphor, right? The simple faith of a child trusting that her father has her best interest in heart. But trust the words of her father onto a crazy adventure, right? That is terrifying and exciting at the same time. So here's what I think. My job today is just to challenge you again to, to when you read the scripture, when you hear a sermon, when you're doing these things, ask yourself, like, am I, am I really going all out at this? Have I taken the big step of faith here? Am I following the Lord for all that he's called me to 
what if I took one more step? Like, what if I went just a little bit further? For us, I, I moved to Reno, Nevada a year ago uh, to be a missions pastor at this church, and that was exciting, a big, fun adventure. We moved out here. This church wanted to be involved in some international projects. They'd never really done that, and so I, I helped them set up six trips for their church and, and, and do this, and during this whole process, we realized, man, there were so many churches that wanted to be involved with, with missions, but they just didn't know how. So we launched this ministry. We decided to make a, make a big change and launch this ministry to do that. And so I left the church that I had just moved to, moved back into my old house in Oklahoma, and then just started. Because there's a part of me that when I hear this, that God interrupted my life, I just can't not do something about it, right? And so my last little story here as I'm finishing up, um, there's, there's a playwright, his name is David Lodge, and he tells a story about a day in 1963, which is a date that some of you will recognize. He was in a playhouse watching one of his plays be performed, and there's a scene in the play where one of the characters goes and turns on a transistor radio and like tunes it into a station, but they're tuning in an actual radio to a station, okay? But they're in the midst of a play, and so the character comes over here when that point comes, and there's many, many people watching this play, and they turn the thing on, and he turns it in, and then it just so happens that this, like it locks in at an exact time, this stark, urgent voice rang out in the theater on the radio that said, today in Dallas, Texas, President Kennedy was shot and killed. But all these people had been in the theater, and they turned it off, but the play was over because the reality of what was going on had broken in and the play was done. And in our life sometimes we're doing these things, we're doing the come to church, do the things that we're doing, but every so often reality of the needs of people and the opportunity to follow the Lord breaks in and you can't unhear it. You can't unsee it. I went on that first missions trip, I saw God do things in people's life and I said, Lord, every time you give me a chance to go, I'm gonna go. And that was a long time and a lot of trips ago. And so my challenge for you today, right, I didn't set out to become a missionary, but God put me in a place to see the need and I never recovered. So my challenge for you today is to take a step. Maybe it's leading a small group. Maybe it's getting more involved in, in worship team. Maybe it's going on a mission trip. Maybe it's befriending your neighbors. I don't know what the step is, but just to say, Lord, what is it that you've got in my life? What, what is the next step? And then take the courageous step to see what God will do. It just might be that he does something crazy in your life. It just might be that you're on this crazy adventure that is the difference between somebody coming to know the Lord and not. That's been my life. That's my story. And, uh, and I'm really excited. I'm excited for you. And so I'm just going to pray for you guys, and the pastor's going to come, and, and we're going to finish up this morning. But thank you so much for letting me be with you. Um, and I, I just want to pray uh, just a blessing for you guys. Father, Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for their heart for you. I thank you for putting them here in this particular place at this particular time with an opportunity um, to engage the community around them with the gospel and beyond. Um, Lord, I thank you for their pastors who I've had the privilege to meet for the last couple of days and really get to know. And um, they've got great leaders. And Lord, I'm really grateful for that. And so Lord, I just pray that you bless their leaders and bless this church. And Lord, that you would do what only you can do in our hearts and help us to take whatever the big step of faith is, that we would leave our nets and follow you wherever you call us to. And so, Lord, I just bless this church, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.